Welcome to the Cinema Matchups podcast. We are your hosts, Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we are back for a one verse eight battle today in our pick your all time favorite movie bracket challenge. If you couldn't tell by that lovely intro that was provided today, we have a fast and furious Tokyo Drift where that song is played no less than 50 times throughout the movie versus our number one seed, which is a Bronx Tale. So we are going to talk about these movies. We're going to talk about these one verse eight seeds, a little bit about them, a little bit about some of the production of them, go into the strengths and weaknesses of each of these movies, talk about little details that made a big difference, observe, talk about why we think someone would suggest these movies for us, why it would be someone's favorite movie of all time, and then reveal our winner that will move on to the next round. So let's jump right into this episode and let's start out by talking about Tokyo Drift. So Fast and Furious, Tokyo Drift, I think the eighth installment or am I too far ahead? You're way too far. The (laughs) third one. The third one. Oh, shit. I have no idea. There are so many of these movies. It's completely. If they're not labeled with a number, they're tough. So I will give you that. That's exactly the problem. Anyways, so I guess the third one, Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift comes in at a 37% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, not super well liked and uh, not nominated for any awards, surprisingly. And I feel like a good tell is that the only awards it was nominated for were MTV Movie Awards and Teen Choice Awards, which is always a tell that you're uh, probably dealing with a mediocre movie that caters to maybe a very specific audience. Anyways, one fun fact I found when researching this is that we've actually talked about this statistic in another movie that we reviewed. And I'm going to see if you can remember which one it was. The Blues Brothers? That's exactly it. Is it the cars? Yes. There were a hundred cars wrecked and destroyed in Tokyo Drift. And when we did our Blues Brothers podcast, we talked about how they had at one point set a record for how many cars had been wrecked or destroyed during the filming of a movie. And they capped this one at 103. So the Blues Brothers had 103 cars destroyed, wrecked in that movie, which is incredible because when we were trying to think of a movie that would top the Blues Brothers, one of our first instincts, both of us, was Fast and Furious. And they did not beat them by three cars. Matrix Reloaded still has 300 still at the top. But fun fact in that. Flipping over to a Bronx tale, not so many cars wrecked uh, in this movie, but a couple, I think. Um, A Bronx tale comes in at a 97% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, the directorial debut of Robert De Niro. Um, Not a single major award nomination for this movie, which I found absolutely incredible. That feels weird. Feels so weird. Not a single Oscar, not a single Globe, not a single SAG award, no nomination at all for anything, um, which was so surprising. This is written by Chaz Palminteri, who starred in it, wrote it, wrote the screenplay for it, but also this was adapted from a one-man play that he wrote based on his life. And some of these are true events of him actually witnessing a murder when he was younger. Um, so very much based on his life. And then for him to come in and star in this movie as Sonny, I mean, just had a huge hand in this. I guess it was a one man show. Robert De Niro saw this one man show, really loved it. I guess people were trying really hard to buy the rights to this and try and make it into a movie. 
But Chaz Palminteri wanted so badly to be involved in writing the screenplay for the movie. And a lot of people didn't want that until De Niro came along. And De Niro so heavily wanted him involved that Palminteri was actually involved in casting, scouting locations, editing, and the sound mixing parts of this movie. Jesus Christ. It is pause all over it. But uh, really, really awesome to see someone who created something based on their own life, put it into this one man show and then be involved in turning it into something bigger and bigger and bigger throughout his entire life. So, so cool. Really cool production behind this. But like I said, no awards presence, which is so strange to me, but that's because all the people that voted for it were the same people that he turned down when they were trying to buy it. <laughs> probably, probably. Yeah. The, uh, the actors guild and the Academy. Yeah. You didn't want me to have a hand, my hand in this movie. No thanks. Yeah. Scorsese was like, you can go fuck yourself, man. Anyways, those are our two movies. So let's jump right into strengths and weaknesses of these movies. And let's start with the Bronx tale. So the strength of this movie is that it's a movie where the whole story is about choices and choices being made and how those choices affect your life. And we have the main character. I'm going to call him C. That's his nickname in the movie. And C has to like go through his life listening to different people and trying to think about what is the correct choice for him to make. And it's fascinating because in a movie like this, most of the time it would be like the one person that makes all the correct choices, right? So I feel like where this movie would usually go is that he only ever listens to his dad, Robert De Niro, right? And he does, he makes all of those choices. Those are all the right choices. But we find out that Sonny can also make some choices that are correct where his dad's wrong. For example, the racism in his dating life. And it's interesting watching C try and figure out who to trust and whose opinion to go with at these big pivotal moments in his life. And I think that's the big strength of this movie. And let's set this up a little bit so people know what we're talking about and know a little bit about how these characters interact. So A Bronx Tale, uh, we start out with C, who's a little boy on his front stoop in the Bronx. And he lives next door to this bar where there's some heavy mobster activity. You know, these people are a part of organized crime. It's all the same guys. They all hang out. And one day he witnesses a murder happen in front of of his house while he's sitting on the stoop and he's a little kid and he witnesses this head honcho Sonny commit this murder. And then the cops come and they know that C was sitting on the stoop. They try to have him identify. They go down the line. He looks right at Sonny. The cops say, is this the man who shot that guy? And he goes, no. So he covers for Sonny. Then it fosters this relationship between him and Sonny. And then Lorenzo, played by Robert De Niro, is his father, who's just this humble guy who drives a bus for a living, doesn't want any part in this organized crime business, doesn't want his kid to have any part in it. So it's almost these two very strong protectors in his life, like you were mentioning, And it does pull you in a lot of different directions. And that falls on my biggest strength of this movie too, is just, this is a well-rounded story. And these are well-rounded characters. There are a lot of characters in this movie that don't have equal screen time, but you know who they are. So they do a really good job at the beginning too, of having C with this almost narrator voice, explain all the guys in Sonny's mob and talk about how they play a part and all their different quirks. And then they talk about 
all the kids who are in kind of his little inner circle who grow up to try and be in a life of organized crime as well. And you really know all of these characters and they give them all a full story, even if some of them are on the screen for a couple minutes. They all play a big part in C's life and you know why. I love that you brought that up because you actually just spoiled my little detail. And it is that the narration of this movie that builds the world and the characters is the first 10 minutes. We don't have actual dialogue for the first 10 minutes of the movie. It is just a narrator telling you about the place, the people, and we get a couple like bigger Italian dudes going like, how you doing or something like that. But we don't actually get an actual dialogue conversation. So sorry, I skipped ahead to the little details, but you brought it up. And I just wanted to mention that I thought that was a very smart choice because it first 10 minutes builds this world and then you're just in it and it makes it hit that much harder. And it's a smart choice, but it's also a risky choice because I think coming from a play, that's how a lot of plays are set up, right? You're introducing the setting, you're introducing the characters because especially in a one man show, you don't have a lot of other context to go off of in a stage play. Whereas in a movie, you might have more scenery, you might have more body language to go off of. You have more characters, you have more actors. And I think it could hit or miss classic example that I will use is what they did in Suicide Squad is that they showed all the like player cards of all of these characters, who they are, what they did. They explained too much and it took away from the movie. It was too much explaining. It was too much backstory. And it's like, I didn't need that. But I feel like sometimes writers, directors feel pressured to give people a full comprehensive story right off the bat. And sometimes it works like it did here. And sometimes it just doesn't. And I think in general, the storytelling of this movie is incredible. It is such a well-written screenplay. It is such a full, satisfying story. It's a coming of age story. It is a story about, like Sean said, racism and about love and about who your family is and about unexpected protagonists, really. One thing that I think I can speak for both of us that we really liked about this movie is just the character of Sonny. You're introduced to this guy by seeing him shoot somebody and know that he is hanging out with all these guys at the bar next door. And you have Lorenzo telling C, you don't go over there. You don't interact with those people. Those are bad people. And so you kind of buy into that idea and you say like, yeah, this little kid should distance himself from him. And then you see more and more of Sonny like doing these great big fatherly acts and trying to protect him and trying to say like, why are you trying to buy a gun? You don't need a gun. You're not going to get a gun. You're not going to hurt anybody. You're not going to kill anybody. You're not going to do that stuff. You're not going to lead the life I did. And like forcibly pulling him out of a car on his way to go and attack the black people on the other side of town because there's so much hatred with these black people coming into town and into the Italians part of the Bronx. And there's so much hatred on both sides there. And Sonny's pulling him out and telling him, you know, you love who you love. If you like this girl, you you love this girl. Go for it. Keep doing what you're doing. But you got to give her the door test. (laughs) The door test. Classic. No, but you realize through this movie and we looked at each other a couple times and was like, is Sonny the good guy? Is Lorenzo the 
bad guy. But you realize Lorenzo isn't the bad guy. He's just a protective father because he knows what he knows. He knows what Sonny has done. He knows what Sonny's cronies have done. He doesn't know him as a person. And C gets to know him as a person and as a father figure. And it's really, really fun to watch it play out. But Lorenzo is not wrong in these scenarios, right? At one point, he says Sonny has to look over his shoulder his entire life. I don't have to do that. I just get to drive this bus like I'm okay with that decision. That's a good decision to make. And then that goes into a conversation between Lorenzo and C about who Sonny actually trusts and that Sonny doesn't trust anyone. Then we get to see that play out later in the movie. And it just the whole movie, I think, works so well. Yeah. And that being said, I really don't have very many weaknesses at all for this movie. The only weakness I have is the acting is weak in some spots. I think specifically with like Slick and some of the kids in that gang. And then Jane, I think her acting is really, really bad. The scenes with Jane are rough. Yeah, she's really not a great actress. Um, Yeah, she she could have been a little bit more dynamic, a little better. Same with, like I said, some of his friends are... Uh, pretty poor actors. And that's my only qualm with this movie because I absolutely loved it. I have the same thing for my weakness. It's it, but it's also written bad. The dialogue between C and Jane are just, it's just weird. I disagree with you there. I totally disagree with you there because I think that these are two people who are going into this relationship very cautiously and talking about very face level face value kind of things. And they should be a little bit awkward. And so I think the dialogue being a little bit awkward is right on. I just think that the way that the girl who played Jane delivered it did a really bad job. We'll agree to disagree on that. It's a little clunky for two people that end up being in love. She's one of the the great three and they're going to talk like that. There's no connection. They're also like 16. She's one of the three, Kim. I would love for you to go back and take a look at you conversing with anyone for the first time when you were 15 or 16. Okay, well, first of all, don't bring me into it. I'm not in the movie. I'm sure I had the same thing. I wasn't having sophisticated dialogue with somebody when I was 15 or 16. You know what, Kim? I got to call my friend Tony in here. Tony, put it in the bathroom. Okay, that scene was hilarious, by the way. This, I wrote this down in my notes, but it doesn't really fit anywhere, but I'm going to talk about it anyways, because it was a hilarious scene and also kind of the intro into a little bit of the charm of Sonny. So C starts working for Sonny when he's a little kid and he basically is at the bar and just like hands out drinks to people and gets tips and stuff like that. And Sonny's having probably like some kind of a legal craps game in the basement of this bar. And as he's throwing the dice, there's one guy who's just like getting too close to him. And he's like, throw him in the bathroom. Put him in your fucking bathroom. Put him in the fucking bathroom. And the bathroom is the size of like a a tiny, tiny closet. And they're these big, giant Italian dudes. And then the other guy um, is a jinx is a jinx um, who, by the way, fun fact about that guy. He is the real guy that this story is based off on. De Niro had a hard time finding someone to cast as that guy. And he asked Palminteri, he was like, what if we find this guy? And he was at that same block that he like always knew him from and always sat on. They got him to be in this movie. So he's the actual guy um, from his life. But anyway, so it's this guy who's just a jinx and he's like, put him in the bathroom. And then C starts throwing the dice. And this one guy who has like scarring all over his face, um, 
He's like, he can't look at that. He can't throw the dice at that. Put him in the bathroom. Put him in the fucking bathroom. Put him in a fucking bathroom. <laughs> and it's just a really funny scene. And you're like, oh, Sonny is kind of funny. And he's that scene brought a lot of charm. And it kind of introduces you to this idea that maybe maybe Sonny's got some redeeming personality Sonny's traits. just a good hang. He's a good hang. Unless yeah. he tells you to get in a fucking bathroom. Yeah, exactly. Um Anyways, let's let's move over now to Fast and Furious. I feel like we've been talking about A Bronx Tale for quite some time. And I think that will be the majority of this podcast is Tokyo Drift was cool, but maybe not as much context to talk about. But anyways, let's get into Tokyo Drift and tell me about your strengths for Tokyo Drift. So have you ever seen Gundam Wing? No. Do you know what it is? Okay. No. Um, it's an anime and it takes that part from Power Rangers when they get in their, their specific crafts, they'll have like cars and they're shaped like dinosaurs, right? You remember that? Of course. So Gundam. It's morphin' time. Yeah. Gundam's is, is that, but they're like mechanical suits. And that is all I could think about while watching Tokyo Drift is that these cars are their like Gundams. They're automobiles that they do their their fighting in. So Transformers. Kind of. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you got that feeling watching this, but that was a big strength for me is that they use these cars like they were fighting machines. And I think that's a big strength of this movie is that these racing scenes where they're like crashing into each other, it's ratcheted up but not too much like it is in the current Fast and Furiouses. It still has that old school Fast and Furious feeling. Um, So I think that's important. And another strength that I have is that this movie goes all in on cars. I don't know if you noticed, but anytime they're hanging out, what's on TV? Cars. It feels like I'm in a universe where they fight with cars, they watch cars, and it's cars, cars, cars. Number one sport is racing on TV, right? And and in the streets. And I think that's a big strength of this movie is that they jammed cars in as much as they could. They leaned all the way into it. And I think that really worked for the good parts of this movie. That's an interesting concept. And it's interesting reframing it in that way for me, because I think I had so many problems with this, this movie because of the people in it and because of the acting and because of the dialogue. And almost if you took all of that out and just made it a movie about cars with these car scenes and racing cars and stuff like that, I think it honestly would have been so much better. And I haven't seen any of the other Fast and Furious movies, so I don't know anything about this franchise. I've heard that people really, really like it. I've heard that people really, really hate it. And I think maybe the key to it is you have to have some kind of liking or interest of cars or races to at least appreciate that. And I think that is my biggest strength of this movie is that some of the drifting scenes were really cool to watch. Some of the cars were really cool to look at. He drifted through a crowd of people, Kim. So that was a really cool scene. But on the other hand, what I really liked about this movie too, is they showed some of the realities of racing. They showed these cars being absolutely totaled and wrecked. They showed someone dying. Like one of the main characters of this movie, Han, he dies in a car crash because they're recklessly racing on the streets of Tokyo. Like that felt nice. I mean, not nice because he died, but it felt very much more realistic than like, yeah, we're drifting on the side of a cliff and everyone's totally okay. Or we're drifting through a crowd and no one gets hurt at all. That's what they do now in like Fast and Furious 7, 8, 9. They are, they're all, they fl- they're, all the cars fly now. That's just what it is. Good. Awesome. Um, no, but I really liked some of these, these car scenes and I think they were really cool. They're also, um, 
was just like little details about the car scenes. And this gets into my little details, I guess. But did you have before you go? I just want to say, did you have a favorite car scene? No, I'm not that invested. No. Okay. (laughs) I just thought they were all kind of cool. Okay. The the drifting through the crowd was cool. That that was my favorite too. Yeah. Um, but what I was gonna say about adding on to the strength, coupling with a little detail, is I noticed that in movies I love like car montages. So there's a scene where they take this junky old car and they soup it up and make it look really nice for this drifting race. And it's just a fun montage that is just set to music and there's no one talking and they're putting everything into the car and it's fitting perfectly. And it's just like a cool, like ASMR, oddly satisfying kind of video of them like making this car look nice and restoring it. And the the paint coats and yeah, yeah. all of it. It's just very oddly satisfying. And I really appreciated that. Um, But going into weaknesses of this movie, my weakness is the storyline and the the dialogue. all, All of that. Yes. I mean, the dialogue physically hurt me on some points from the first five minutes of this movie where they are racing through a housing development area. And this one girl from his high school is like, winner gets me. And I'm like, Oh, gross. This is terrible dialogue. And just all of it. It is a poorly, poorly, poorly written script. Really, really awful. The actors are really, really awful. So who is the best actor? Vin Diesel. Bow Wow. Oh. <laughs> Vin Diesel, because he has about a two second cameo where I think he has like one line. He was like, let's go, kid. By the way, it would do me a grave injustice to not mention this to you guys. But in case you didn't know, Vin Diesel has a singing career. He has a song. Here it is. We're going we're gonna to get this taken down for copyright issues with uh, all of the Fast and Furious. Guys, this is Vin Diesel. The song Box. <laughs> it's called Feel Like I Do. And if you want to look it up on YouTube or on Spotify, it's up there. Um, but we talk to our friend Josh about this regularly now because it is, we stumbled upon Vin Diesel's music career a few weeks ago. And all of us then added that song to like our Spotify playlist and listen to it regularly now because it is a fucking jam. And that's my little detail. Vin <laughs> Diesel in this movie. Uh, and that he feels like he does and <laughs> that family is everything because that's the important part, right? One of the big things about the Fast and Furious movies is this idea of family, and it's really nice that Vin Diesel was in it. And then he gave a line about Han being part of his extended family that if you watch Fast and Furious movies, everyone is in. It's this whole family over everything. And we're a family and family, family, family. And I love that a movie. And even though we said the story was bad, this movie is still about these characters, like finding who they are in life. Right. Sean has to find out how to drift so he can be the true racer that he needs to be. It's a Um, stretch, but sure. (laughs) Exactly. But at the end of the movie, we do see that he finds his place in the world. And where is that at? In the family with Vin Diesel. So my little detail is Vin Diesel and how he just ties all of these movies together. I like that. And he's 
a creator of the song I of the summer. I feel like I do. It's a fucking bop, you guys. It's so fun. Please go listen to a song. It's so fun. Um, <laughs> I would also be upset with myself if I didn't mention this one big glaring weakness of this movie that Sean actually pointed out as we were watching it. And it's glaringly obvious. And it's the treatment of women as possessions to be won. Um, yeah, not great. <laughs> it's really, really not great. And I'm not sure how they go about it in future movies. But it was a theme with pretty much every female that was in this movie. The beginning, this girl he was trying to get is like race and the winner gets to bang me or whatever it is. And then this girl he meets in Tokyo, it's the same thing. It's like whoever can have the better race car, whoever's better, like you can win her, you can have her. Like it it just felt like very degrading to the women in this movie. And because of that, they also got minimal dialogue. They didn't have anything important to say. They tried to do it with Neela, the girl from Tokyo who becomes Sean's love interest with giving her this backstory of why she got into racing, but it also felt very superficial and not developed enough. There are five characters that kind of controlled this entire movie. Main guy, best friend who dies, celebrity, love interest, bad guy. I have them all right. Like that's the entire trope of by celebrity. Are you talking about Vin Diesel or Bow Wow? (laughs) Yeah, guys, Bow Wow is in this movie as well, which is so fun because it's like when's last time you saw Bow Wow in anything besides like Mike? I do actually think that Bow Wow is very good in this movie. He was fun in this movie. He was a fun, he was the sidekick friend who's a little bit funny, who needs a little bit help, who's down on his luck, who needs Sean to fight his battles for him. And he was, he was a good sidekick character. He really was. Like you said, all the acting in this movie is not great. I think he does okay. He does do okay. We'll give him that. But overall, not super, super great. I think we already talked about little details for a couple of these movies. We talked about little details for Fast and Furious, but little details for Bronx Tale. I know you had mentioned one. Do you have any additional ones? No, it's just that first 10 minutes that they use exclusively for uh, world and character building. Cool. Okay. Well, I have one and... Again, maybe this is me reading too much into it and maybe this is not purposeful, but I thought it was really cool. So very early on in the movie, after C witnesses Sonny kill that guy and lies about it to the police, he goes to confession and he tells the priest, I witnessed a murder and then I lied about it. And the priest is like, wait, what? And the priest gives him this lecture on, you know, what's the fifth commandment? And it's like, thou shall not kill. And... He's like, all right, do five Hail Marys and five Our Fathers. He's like, that's it, Father? I get off that easy? Um, So it was another funny scene, but also kind of gave him a preaching on the Ten Commandments and things like that. Flash forward years, years later, there is the bar that they are frequenting and a biker gang who comes into the bar and starts heckling the bartender and really making a mess of the place. So Sonny comes in, locks the door, cronies come in, they beat the shit out of these guys and basically like leave them just bloodied and beat up on the side of the road. And C is in the bar when this happens and is kind of cowering behind a table, trying not to get in the way, trying not to get hurt, is really scared. During this bar fight scene, the whole lead up to it, they're playing Come Together by the Beatles. And when one of Sonny's cronies 
takes one of these bikers and throws them into the jukebox, come together, stops playing. (laughs) It stops the song, which is cool in of itself. But then the song that comes after it is, I don't know the name of the song, but one of the lyrics is the 10 commandments of love. And I thought that that was maybe purposeful in that this is the second time that C has actually seen Sonny hurt someone. And the first time was followed by a reminder of what these 10 commandments are and what somebody who follows the 10 commandments are and what that means for religion and morals and things like that. And then here it is being kind of thrown at sea again, watching Sonny do something bad to other people and having to wrap his mind around this a little bit. And again, see not doing anything after that, just watching Sonny hurt someone and not do anything. So I thought the idea of stopping the song with the guy being thrown into into the jukebox was a really, really cool detail. But then the follow-up of the next song I thought was pretty thoughtful if it was a purposeful move. That's a good one. I really like that scene. It's fun. And there's so many good scenes in this movie. So why would a Bronx Tale be someone's favorite movie of all time? Like I said before, it's about choices. And someone who loves this movie really likes to watch those movies where choices matter. And not only are you like watching it for the choices, but they grab you and invest you into the story and into this character to see what his choices would turn his life into. Yeah, I love that. I think that this movie can be appreciated by a lot of different people. There's been a lot of movies we've watched so far where we've kind of zeroed in on a particular person or a couple themes or sets of people who would really appreciate these. And I think this movie, who can appreciate it from a lot of different lenses? If you really enjoy theater and you really enjoy live plays and you enjoy the story of that, I think you're going to appreciate this movie. If you like your mobster movies, if you love The Sopranos, I think you're really going to like this movie. If you like a coming of age story, I think you're really going to like this movie. If you just love good storytelling and feeling like a nice completed story happens at the end of a movie, I think you're really going to like this movie. I think this reaches out to several different demographics. I think if you're wanting to watch a movie about like social racial injustices and how that plays out in earlier times, this is a movie you're going to like. I I just think there's a lot of things in here for a lot of people because it is so heavy on being a good movie and very light on some of those things that makes some of those genres I just talked about too, too heavy, right? Like in the play and the theatrical aspect of it, it's not two stage play. You're not watching like Fences, right? Fences is great. Loved Fences, but Fences is very clearly adapted from a play and very, very dialogue heavy. It's not at the level of a mobster, violent, violent movie where you can't just digest all of that. You still have some violence in there. You still have some crime in there, but it's not overshadowing the whole thing. You have a coming of age story, but it's not just circled around this one boy and all of the woes of every single thing he's going through. It's about all of these other people too. So I think it's not all in on any of these genres, but it touches on them in just the right amount to make so many different people appreciate this. I like that little wrap up. Not little. That was a big wrap up, but it was accurate. I agree with all of those things. It does sit kind of in the middle of where it reaches out to. So going over to Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, this being someone's favorite movie, I think you have to kind of like cars or appreciate cars 
to like this movie. I don't think you can hate cars or hate cool cars or hate car scenes and watch this movie and even remotely like it. I think you have to like cars. And I think maybe with this one, since it was so bad, and I think some of the other ones have really good reviews in the franchise, this movie, I think if it's your favorite or you really, really like it, you have the feeling that you have to be loyal to this shit show of a movie since you liked all the of the others. It's like Halloween three, right? Nobody likes Halloween three, but they're not going to be like, oh yeah, fuck it. Fuck Halloween franchise because Halloween three was bad. Nobody's saying that Halloween three was just a bad movie. Tokyo Drift was just a bad movie. And maybe it's not the best one out there, but it's cool. It's got some cool shit to look at. It does. You like cars, you like the race scenes, but something else is you also enjoy, this is going to sound weird when I say it, but you enjoy things being bigger than what they are. For example, two men are fighting over a woman, right? That's kind of what this movie is about. And how do they do it? They race through one of the biggest cities in the world, drifting through crowds of people and then down a big hill where one of them might die over a girl in high school. <laughs> And there's something about this big drama buildup over something that is in real life pretty small. There's something about that that I think also kind of gets you going a little bit. And that's a good point. It has to, you have to have a buy-in to that if this is your favorite movie. Well, guys, that being said, I think we have a very clear winner. So on a three, two, one countdown, we will reveal what movie moves on to the next round in this bracket challenge. You ready? Yep. Three, Two, one. A, a Bronx, Bronx tale. tale. But I do want to say that both of these movies I would consider owning. Interesting. Very interesting. No, I I liked the Fast and Furious movie more than I thought I was going to and appreciated it more than I was going to. So I appreciate uh, the person who suggested it. And who knows, maybe we'll watch a couple other ones here and there. But A Bronx Tale. I own the first one. We'll watch it later. Okay, great. Um, a Bronx Tale does move on to the next round. A truly a spectacular movie, you guys. Um, just really, really, really fucking good. Um, so if you haven't seen it, we rented it on Amazon. It's available, it seems, on a couple other sites to rent but it was truly, truly very good. And we'll move on to the next round. It is a first seed, so no big upset here, but we'll see how some of the other first verse eight seeds shape up. So that being said, our next matchup will be Casablanca, which is a first seed versus Law Abiding Citizen, which is an eighth seed. And we will drop that episode on Monday, June 7th. If you guys want to follow along with us on social media, please give us a like, follow on Twitter and Instagram at the Cinema Matchups, where we post some content weekly on those. Love to hear from you guys. Love to interact with you guys. You can catch our next podcast episode on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, wherever you're listening to this episode right now. So that will wrap up our week Go check out A Bronx Tale or Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. Pretty good. And we will see you guys next week with Casablanca and Law Abiding Citizen. For this week, for the Cinema Matchups, we are Kim Kohler and Sean Rodenberg, and we will see you next time. <laughs> also, go support Vin Diesel's music like career. <laughs> Thanks, guys. See you next week. <laughs>